Good morning, Edgewood. Appreciate you joining us this morning for this live stream of our Sunday service. If you happen to miss us last week, just to let you know what's going to happen uh, from 10 to 10.30, we're doing uh, our adult Bible study. We're continuing on in our study of 2 Samuel. Immediately following that, we'll transition to our senior pastor who will give some announcements and updates, and we'll transition to uh, what would typically be our normal worship service with, uh, with music and sermon. Uh, but to get started, I thought I would open us up with just a couple verses uh, from Psalm 5. Uh, as we start off with some prayer, uh, our uh, reading through the Bible, our reading plan for the year um, had us in Psalm 5 uh, sometime last week. I can't remember the day. Uh, but in the last two verses of Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12, we read this. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would give us insight and understanding, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend and hearts to love the truth as we find it and as it's applied to us uh, by the effective work of your Holy Spirit. Uh, continue to give us the grace to trust you through uh, interesting and, and sometimes difficult circumstances. We pray that all this would work to your glory and would work to our good, and it's in the name of Christ we ask it. Amen. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to have a Bible with you um, as, because it will make it easier for you to follow along with some of the things that we talk about. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And what I'm going to do to start off, I'm going to, uh, before reading part of the passage, I'm going to talk about this last unit or last section in 2 Samuel to give us an understanding of how the book is being wrapped up, how the story is being concluded. That then will maybe give us a little bit of insight or appreciation for some of the things that we read in this chapter. And then uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first half of the chapter. I'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But let me start off by saying this. Uh, there is pretty wide agreement that by the time you get to uh, chapter 21 and you work your way through the end of the chapter or through the end of the book, chapters 21 through 24 function together as a unit. Uh, and the reason that that seems to be is because structurally there is uh, strong evidence that this, these last chapters of the book have, have an intentional design behind it. So if you were to uh, just ignore the chapter breaks and follow the material that you have in there, what you would notice and what you would see is that where we're starting in chapter 21 starts off with a national disaster that requires David's intervention. From there, it goes to a discussion of David's uh, military men and exploits. And then following that, we have one of David's psalms. And then we have another psalm. We have an account of David's men and some of their military exploits, and then the book ends on another national disaster that requires David's intervention. So there seems to be a very clear pattern that goes on here, and what that pattern does, it puts at the heart of this closing unit two psalms or two songs 
that David provides for us. And those Psalms, as we'll begin to see next week, really seem to sum up or provide sort of a, a, a backward view or a summary of how we should read everything that we've encountered, not just in 2 Samuel, but we could even say in 1 Samuel as well. So with that being said, the chapter that we have today, 1 Samuel 21, has the first two parts, has a national disaster that David has to respond to, and then has a section on David's uh, military men and their exploits. Let me start uh, by reading Second uh, uh, Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. The text says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Let me, at the risk of uh, getting sidetracked a little bit here. Let me just provide a word of caution, particularly in this time when we're dealing with a, uh, something of a national epidemic ourselves in the form of coronavirus. Uh, is It would be very easy in a passage like this to see that uh, just as the Lord brings about a national famine that goes on for a period of years uh, as a way to discipline or to punish the guilt of the people It would be easy for us to make a jump and to say, oh, well, that must be exactly what's happening with the coronavirus here in America. God is judging us for our sins in order to bring us to repentance so that our guilt can be settled and put away. Let me just caution us um, against reading that connection between 2 Samuel 21 and our current circumstances too quickly or seeing too tight of a connection there. Uh, Two things just to keep in mind. Number one, the relationship that God had with the nation of Israel was unique in that there was a clear covenant relationship, clear covenant obligations on the part of the people and on the part of God. That is not a relationship that America has with the Lord. We have no covenant obligations or he is not covenantally bound to us. If there is any kind of covenant binding, it is with the church, not with the nation. But secondly, and perhaps most important, is the difference between what we read here in 2 Samuel and what we're experiencing is that David and the people have the advantage of getting a clear message and word from the Lord that this famine that you're encountering is because of this. And then they're told very specifically why it is that they're suffering this famine. 
So I would just, uh, right up front, just want to caution us a little bit um, so that we don't run too quickly or too hastily towards making that one-to-one connection. And we begin to go out and on social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and everything, we're snapping pictures of businesses closed down and sports stadiums closed and pronouncing this is God's judgment on America. It may very well be that God is using something like the coronavirus to grab our attention and to refine us and purify us, even to do that for the nation as a whole. But a good bit of humility would cause us to say, we simply don't know all of the intents and purposes that God has for this pandemic that we're encountering right now. And so because we cannot speak confidently, let's speak softly and let's speak humbly about how we might respond to this situation. Now, having said that, getting into the text itself, a couple things to notice right up front. Notice that there are several things in this interaction that David has with the Gibeonites that indicates the religious nature of what's going on here. So, for example, in verse 1, when we're told that there was a famine in the days of David for three years, it says that David sought the presence of the Lord. That could be an allusion or a hint to the fact that David, in seeking the Lord, actually went to the tabernacle, that he sought perhaps uh, direct revelation or uh, some sort of sign from the Lord through the work of the high priest, or at least that David went to the tabernacle because of the seriousness of the encounter. But David is seeking the presence of the Lord. Second, notice that what David says to the Gibeonites when he hears that the people are guilty of, for Saul's sin, that there is blood guilt on the land that must be dealt with. When David goes and when he appeals to the Gibeonites to ask them for direction on how they can uh, resolve this situation, David refers in verse 3, he asks the question, how can I make atonement for this wrong? So there needs to be some sort of a satisfaction or some sort of uh, smoothing out or reconciling in the relationship between the Gibeonites and God's people. And then third, notice that when the plan of action is settled on, that the Gibeonites ask for uh, Saul's descendants, since Saul is no longer around, to be handed over to them. The plan is, or the intent is, in verses 5 and 6... Uh, Verse 6, that they will take these seven men from Saul's descendants and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. So even the punishment or the execution of Saul's descendants is in one sense said to be before the Lord. So this is more than just politics uh, in a in a very crude or crass way, but there are theological, there are spiritual implications to what's happening here. In that respect, then, what we see of David is uh, sort of a a prototype or uh, a, a measure, a standard for how Israel's kings were supposed to serve the nation. The king, in many ways, represented the people at large. So, negatively, because Saul was the one who had tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, and because that was sinful and wrong... It's not just simply Saul, but it's all of Israel who suffers for the sin of their king. David is now king, and although David had absolutely nothing to do with Saul's sin, 
David and the people are suffering for the sin of their representative, their former king. David then, as the representative, uh, as the figurehead, the go-between between the Lord and his people, is charged specifically with the responsibility of maintaining the law of the Lord, of executing justice fairly and equally throughout all the land. And so because David knows now what the sin is lying behind this famine, David has the responsibility as the chief executive, so to speak, to see that the stipulations of law-abiding covenant faithfulness are restored and maintained for the nation of Israel. One of the things that's, uh, that's interesting and this perhaps sheds a little bit of light going back on, uh, on a previous passage, is that when the Gibeonites ask for some of Saul's descendants, we transition to verse 7. After the Gibeonites have asked for seven of Saul's descendants, in verse 7 we read, But the king, that is David, spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. And then the rest of the verses go on to say that who David took from Saul's family, seven other men, but he spares Mephibosheth. If you think back to when David, uh, under the revolt that Absalom had fomented, when David is having to flee Jerusalem to safer ground, and as he's traveling from Jerusalem towards the Jordan, one of uh, Saul's perhaps tribal connections or family members, Shimei comes out and begins to curse David. And he says, all of this is happening to you because you have blood on your hands, because you have brought blood or shed the blood of the house of Saul. And at the time, it seems like there is no basis for that claim at all. It sounds just like a a disgruntled citizen kicking the king while he's down. But In light of this, you can see how very easily the average citizen could interpret this as being a political move on David's part, that David is sort of couching his movements, his actions in sort of pious behavior, pious language as a way to eliminate some of his threats or rivals to the throne. And of course, if you were from the tribe of Benjamin or if you were loyal to the house of Saul and you saw what was going on, you would say, oh, look at David. David is here willing to hand over Saul's descendants to be executed, and the only one that he keeps, the only one that he spares is the cripple among the group. So in that light then, in that context, that may give us a better understanding for why Shimei earlier had heaped such abuse on David because he would have seen this as David's attempt to wipe out Saul's house, even though David is trying to strike a balance in maintaining his covenant promises with Jonathan to spare his son and also to alleviate the blood guilt that that lies over the land. Having said all that, one of the things that we might consider is the way that David then sort of functions as a type of Christ, both in similar ways and in dissimilar ways. Because of the fact that David is God's anointed and God's king, David is responsible for seeing to it that justice is upheld and maintained. David is responsible for seeing to it that truth, that righteousness 
carries the day. That's what the king was supposed to do, and that's what the people depended on. Because if the king did not maintain the truth and righteousness of the Lord, bad things happen, as we see right here. Of course, as we fast forward and we see the coming of Christ in the New Testament, we recognize that Jesus himself takes on the mantle of the Davidic kingdom as an heir of David and provides himself as the arbiter of truth, as the one to whom the Father in heaven is going to hand over all judgment because he judges perfectly and righteously and because his judgments are nothing less than the very judgments of God. There's a striking difference, however, in the way that we see David fulfilling divine justice and the way that we see Christ fulfilling divine justice. There is no question that there is guilt that must be paid for, that must be remedied. Atonement, satisfaction must be made. In this case, David goes to the guilty house, the guilty party, draws from their members and hands them over for execution as a way for them, for these members of Saul's house to be presented to the Lord as a sign that judgment has been satisfied. Christ, however, comes to the fallen house of humanity, not just of Israel, but Jew and Gentile alike. And although he could righteously demand and declare that all people pay and account for their own sin, for their own blood guilt. This greater Davidic king in the person of Christ doesn't hand over the guilty party. He hands himself over, and he is hung up before the Lord as a way to manifest, as a way to demonstrate publicly that God's righteous requirements and justice has been satisfied, that atonement and satisfaction has been made, for the people of God, and that reconciliation is now possible. So while David, at his very best, gives us a shadow of what Christ would do in the future, even David falls far short of the work of justice and reconciliation that Christ offers up when he offers up his own body, his own life, to be hung out for everyone to see. So, Towards the end of this, uh, of this chapter, or the end of this section, we should say, Rizpah, one of the women who had lost uh, some sons as a result of this, goes out to mourn, uh, fends off the wild animals and the birds from feeding on the carcasses of these, uh, these men who had been executed. We're told in verses 10 and following, uh, pick up at verse 11, when it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. So you see, it's after the reconciliation, after the satisfaction, the atonement has been made, and the putting to rest, in one sense, almost literally, of the guilt and the sin 
that the Lord receives the prayer, the request, the intercession of the people, and specifically of David the king, receives his request and his petitions and causes the plague, the pestilence, the disease and famine to pass over from the people. So David is seen as a king who righteously executes God's judgment for the sake of God's people so that life and blessing can be brought back to God's people to be enjoyed as they walk with God, as they live with God in his presence in the land. The second section of the chapter uh, begins in verse 15, and we have sort of several seemingly disjointed accounts of various military exploits. And interestingly enough, the military exploits don't focus primarily on David himself, but on the men who are with David. Time doesn't permit us to go into, into all of the details, but I did want to spend the remaining time that we had on uh, the very first account that you find in verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. So in 15, we read, Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel." We're going to come there in just a minute because I think that really is a very pivotal and significant statement. Uh, but just a couple of observations uh, very briefly uh, on this encounter. One, notice that one of the interesting things in, in light of the fact that we're in this concluding unit for 2 Samuel and that we have these military exploits that are being given is the way that David is presented uh, for, in this one example that David is characterized as being at war with the Philistines with his men and that David becomes weary. And it's at this point of weariness, this point of weakness and vulnerability that a military champion on the part of the Philistines comes out and intends to target David specifically. And then it's not David who rises to the challenge to kill this Philistine warrior but it's Abishai who steps in and who saves David's life by killing the Philistine. I won't go into all the details right now. I think one of the things that's going on here is that even these military exploits that we have at the end of the chapter is setting us up for some of the statements that David makes about the Lord's faithfulness to him and to his throne in chapter 22 and at the beginning of chapter 23. In other words, it's, another it's an example or an illustration of the fact that for all the great things that David did, for all of the military victories he won, ultimately David was a man. He was capable of being wounded. He was capable of growing weary and tired. He was susceptible to the threats of his enemies. But that God in his faithfulness, because of the promises that he had made to David, kept David, preserved him, 
and fulfilled his rule and his reign to its, to its determined end. That then causes us to appreciate or to look back and to read and to consider, especially as we will next week when we get to one of these, uh, one of these songs, that one of the things that we always need to be mindful of when we're reading about these accounts of David, whether for good or for bad, is that at times the Lord is very visible. He's up front and he's active. At times it seems like the Lord is absent and nowhere to be found. But regardless, in any situation, whether it's David through his own strength, whether it's the strength of Abishai or Joab, whether it's impending doom and darkness that seems to be settling in on the people and on the land, ultimately the Lord has committed himself to David David is the Lord's anointed, and because of that, no harm will be allowed to come to David outside of the Lord's free will. And of course, that's exactly what we see in the person of Christ as well, that Christ enters into our condition, that there is nothing that could take Christ away from his mission, that could prevent him from achieving the determined end and goal of the salvation of God's people apart from the express will of the Father. But here at the end, just, just very briefly, notice what is said at the end of verse 17. The men go to David, recognizing the serious threat that he was under, and they say to him, you shall not go out with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Just very briefly, if we had more time, we could do a little bit more with it. The lamp of Israel. One of the interesting things is that word there that's used in the Hebrew, when you uh, do a quick search on it in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, every time that word appears, that Hebrew word for lamp, it's used in reference to the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. And if you remember, the golden lampstand was set up across from the table of showbread, the 12 loaves of bread. And the symbolism seems to be something like it's the light of the Lord shining on his people, on the nation. And that the promised blessing for the nation was that they would always live in the light of the Lord's presence. David then is referred to as the lamp of Israel. When you fast forward and when you get to 1 Samuel, the only time you have the lamp mentioned in 1 Samuel is when Samuel, as a boy, is ministering in the tabernacle, and it says the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. That's in chapter 3. And then interestingly, the only other place that this word occurs outside of our passage here is in chapter 22, verse 29, where David says, for you are my lamp. Oh Lord. I think one of the things that we're to see here and to understand is that in the developing storyline of the Bible, that God in his grace and as a blessing to his people has provided them with a king, and the king himself is meant to embody, as much as any human could, is meant to embody the very presence, the very light of the Lord walking, living, ruling, and reigning among his people, which is one of the reasons that Israel's history is so tragic, because rather than the monarchy, rather than the king being the light of the Lord that the people can look to and to see some sort of lesser reflection, even a dim reflection of the glory of the Lord, so often, whether it's David, Solomon, or the kings to come, 
It's very hard to see any kind of reflective light of the glory of the Lord. David then shows us that one of the things that God is doing in placing his anointed king on the throne, in establishing an eternal covenant that David, you and your descendants will always have the right to rule over my people Israel, that this was one of the ways that God was going to bring his light to his people. And ultimately, that prepares us again for the coming of Christ, who comes as the heir to David's throne, David's greater son, and who presents himself in the temple, in the hill countries, on the roadways, presents himself not only as Israel's coming king, but as a light to the nations, as the very glory of the Father reflected in human form. So all of this then should give us a a greater desire to see the coming of Christ and to see his work in the Gospels especially, and to recognize that for all the good and for all the blessing that God brings through David, his anointed king, even David still points out, even in his victories, just how much we lack until we actually have God in the flesh, the Messiah walking and dwelling in our midst. Bow with me as we close in prayer. Father, how good you are to give us yourself. As your covenant people here in the New Testament, we recognize that that your presence is with us individually and corporately in the person of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. Thank you that we have the light of your presence every day that we wake up, every moment that we draw breath. But Father, we admit and we acknowledge very quickly that we are looking forward to that day in which it will not only be by faith that we walk in your light, but that we will walk in the light of your presence without any uh, barrier, without any hindrance for all time to come, enjoying you in your fullness under the rule and reign of your anointed King, Jesus Christ. Continue to be with us now as we uh, go through a time of uh, song and as we hear your word uh, preached and proclaimed over us. Would you fill us with joy? Would you continue to sustain us and protect us? Uh, Make us ready and eager when all of this passes to come back together and to celebrate your goodness and your kindness to us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We appreciate you uh, taking advantage of the uh, live stream. And, you know, I just want to say, uh, as I was listening to uh, Jonathan uh, share the Sunday School lesson, I was just thinking how blessed we are as a church with the ministerial staff that we have. Uh, With Jonathan and his wonderful gift of uh, teaching God's Word, Uh, Jonathan Wilson with his uh, wonderful gift of creativity and working with our youth and children and growing them in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, or Andy Johnston's uh, wonderful passion for worship and uh, gift in leading us in music. And, of course, we appreciate 
our newest staff member, uh, Terry, on board to, uh, with his wonderful giftings and administration uh, to lead us in uh, bringing greater order to our church and meeting our needs. So I just want these men to know I love them. I have the greatest respect for them and, and, uh, and church family. God has blessed us in giving us these, uh, these men. I just want to share before uh, we move into our worship just uh, a couple of points of announcement and uh, information that would be uh, important to you. Uh, I can let you know that we will definitely be doing the live stream again next Sunday, uh, April 5th. Uh, right now, we're under uh, Governor Kemp's order where we cannot gather more than 10 people, and that goes through April the 6th. So we would anticipate uh, by that time to uh, for uh, Governor Kemp to either extend that or make some change but we'll keep you updated on our church uh, website on what we will be doing. Uh, remember that the church offices are remaining open uh, during these days, our ministerial staff maintaining their regular hours. So if you have any uh, question, feel free to call the church office or any need that we can help you with. Uh, also, let me remind you that uh, both the Sunday school lesson and the worship service, which uh, are both, of course, being li uh, live streamed, can be uh, accessed uh, through a link uh, on our home page or on our Facebook uh, page, either one. Of course, Sunday school at 10, then the worship service at 1030. Jonathan Wilson is providing two pre-recorded programs that are updated by every Sunday morning, one is a children's program, Adventures in uh, Praiseville, and the other for our youth, uh, Level Up a Youth Bible Study. And then, of course, Jonathan uh, Wilson is also uh, doing a daily devotional uh, for our young people and uh, utilizing some of our other youth leaders in that as well. Uh, I just want you to know, and this is an area where uh, all of us can become involved, for our senior adults uh, Andy Johnston, who of course is also our senior adult minister, has developed a plan where our most vulnerable in the church family are being contacted by phone at least once every other week just to check in on them to see if they have any needs. Uh, anyone 60 or above is receiving every single week uh, a letter from me and Andy where we uh, summarize the uh, sermon, especially for those uh, senior adults that may not have computers and can access the live stream. And of course, it will always include a word of encouragement uh, from Andy. And so I would encourage our youth, uh, our children, uh, median uh, and young adults, uh, married couples, uh, it would be great uh, for you to make a contact at least uh, every week with one of our senior uh, adults just to express your love that you, that you care for them and you're praying for them and so feel free to call the church office and uh, Patty would be glad to g give you the information that you would need uh, to do that but that is something everyone in the church family can do that could be very very uh, meaningful uh, I encourage you to continue to be faithful in your giving uh, as I've mentioned before you can uh, mail in your uh, gifts to the church. You can drop them by the church office since the offices are open, or you can utilize the online uh, giving, which is right there on our homepage, top right-hand uh, corner, and it's very simple to, uh, to utilize. Uh, 
Uh, sad to share with the church that Paul Watford uh, went home to be with the Lord uh, last week, so I encourage you to pray for his wife Joanne and the rest of the family. Something that was very, very precious, uh, Paul actually died on their 65th wedding anniversary. And he actually died about the exact time uh, they were getting married. And uh, so uh, pray for the family to know God's grace. And, of course, the last thing I encourage all of us, uh, let's, let's stay in contact with one another through a phone, through a social uh, media. Uh, I think although we cannot meet together, it's important for us to... Uh, uh, stay connected with one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, and so I, I trust you will do that. So let me pray, and then after I pray, I'll turn it over to uh, Andy to lead us in our praise and worship, then I'll coming, be coming right behind him uh, with uh, today's uh, message. Uh, Father, thank you for this wonderful uh, ability uh, to provide this live stream to our church family and others in the uh, community. I pray that uh, they would find uh, great uh, encouragement and the uplifting of their soul and spirit uh, through our worship, uh, through song, through uh, the message that will be given from your uh, word. Uh, Father, we uh, pray in uh, this uh, day of great uh, crisis related to the worldwide a pandemic related to the virus, uh, Lord, that we, uh, as your people, not only here but around the world, would know your uh, protection, would know your provision. Lord, give us the grace as we put our trust and faith in you to even use this crisis as a platform uh, to make you known to a lost world as there are so many people frightened, and this is our opportunity uh, to demonstrate to them our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have the opportunity to lead them to put their faith in Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray you would show mercy to us as uh, a worldwide people and bringing a quick end to this pandemic. We pray especially for those in the medical community that are working on developing cures and a vaccine. We pray you would grant them uh, success and success uh, quickly. Uh, but, Lord, uh, bottom line, we trust you. We trust, as you always do in a time of crisis, you step into it. And out of the crisis, in the midst of the crisis, uh, and so much that from our perspective uh, is bad, uh, you're able to bring good. You're able to bring beauty. You're able to demonstrate your love and your mercy, and we pray that you will do that in these days. So, Lord, bless our service now. Uh, give us grace uh, to turn from that which troubles us and to turn our eyes on Jesus. And as we turn our eyes on Jesus, that we would be set free from anxiety, we'd be set free to put our trust in you, and in that trust find the rest of faith that is in Jesus, for it's in his name we do pray, amen. Thank you, Brother Andy, and good morning, EBC family and friends that may be joining us via live stream. Um, and I just kind of got to thinking before we get started in worship, as I look uh, into this empty sanctuary full of pews, empty seats, as I look uh, in empty choir loft and, and other places on our stage where people would normally sit, I can see the faces of the people who sit in those seats, and, and I can almost hear your voices as you sing. And so my prayer is that you would all stand right now where you are, uh, whether it be in your house, whether it be outside, 
Uh, maybe even open up a few of your windows so that neighbors can hear you praising the Lord, and maybe they'll catch on. Um, but we do want to give glory to God the Father. That's, that's what this first song speaks of, just praising his name. Uh, scripture says um, that in everything, and let every breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And that's what we're going to do today as we sing, To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin. I come to thee. 
standing as I want to read uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 and a few verses out of there that say rejoice evermore pray without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you just a little synopsis there of what that verse means as I read the Lord tells us here that we are to have an attitude of joy thanksgiving and prayer at all times no matter what the conditions or circumstances are that surround us and obviously we do have some circumstances and conditions that are going on around us and this verse does not mean that we are to thank God for bad things and tragedies that come our way it means that we are to remain joyful no matter what is happening in our lives because we have the Lord amen and in him we shall overcome no matter what the devil is trying to do to us the Lord does not want us to thank him uh, for the bad things that that happen uh, to us because he did not send them he is not the author of evil, as his, as his scripture says. And we are not to become bitter of our, over our lives, maybe even over our circumstances, but rather continue to rejoice in the Lord, just as we sing into God be the glory, as we sing, let the people rejoice. And that's what we're doing in the midst of a time like this. This next song that we're going to sing together basically speaks of what we just sang, Lord, I need you. And we need to be worshiping him in spirit and in truth, uh, and rejoicing to him, not focusing on what's going on around us, but focusing on God, our creator, uh, and, and leaning towards him. So continue to worship with us and sing it out to him, Lord, I need you.
I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh, God, how I need Your grace is more Where grace is found Is where you are And where you are Lord, I am free And holiness Is Christ in me Yes, where you song to rise to you when temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay and when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh, God, how I need you. 
Thank you. Thank you, uh, Andy. Appreciate, uh, of course, again, Jenny and uh, Jan and the three guys. Again, we have uh, Kevin and uh, Jamie on uh, drums and his son Samuel as, uh, as well. And uh, we appreciate uh, their ministry. It's uh, uh, very meaningful to all of us. Today's message is what I would call the uh, coronavirus of the soul. And I'm referring uh, to worry. Uh, other than bitterness, I cannot think of any other infection of the soul more damaging to a person's spiritual life and growth uh, than worry. Worry will weaken your faith, and if it goes untreated, uh, you can succumb. Uh, to fear and panic. And I want you to know, my desire is not to rebuke you if you're struggling with worry, especially in the midst of this uh, national health and economic crisis. Uh, my desire is to relieve you in the struggle, and I pray God will do that uh, this very, very day. Uh, let's begin by defining worry. I touched on this in last Sunday's message, but we're going to amplify this in a much greater way this morning. The word worry or anxiety in our Bibles is merimneo in the Greek text. That word literally means to divide or to tear apart or to distract. Worry is becoming so concerned over what might or might not happen in the future that you become distracted, distracted from seeing and trusting God in the present. And sadly, this is happening to so many, many people in this present crisis. The first thing we need to realize, which we generally are totally oblivious to, is what we as God's children communicate to our Heavenly Father when we worry. Here is what our worry says to God. God, you know, I know you mean very well in what you promised in your word about providing for me, uh, protecting me, being for me, uh, so much so that you've told me that you will cause all things to work together for my good, therefore I can rest in you. But you know, God, I just don't believe I can trust you to pull it off. Worry strikes a blow at the very heart of God's character by calling into question God's integrity God's love, and God's power. Even as an imperfect earthly father, I can't think of anything that would bring me greater pain than to know my children cannot trust me. Now, how much more is the pain for a perfect heavenly father who has never failed his children and he's given us every reason to trust him. Uh, I think of Romans 8, uh, verses 31 and 32. It reads this way, In face 
of all this. And that this would include the coronavirus. In face of all of this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, God, that did not hesitate to spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, can we not trust such a God to give us with Him, with Christ, everything else that we need? What more can God say? What more can God do to prove His love for you? Or the fact that He's worthy of your trust. Bottom line, when you just look to the cross and the demonstration of God's love there for us, that should be enough to diminish all of our worries. But let's look now at just a few of the characteristics of, of worry. The, the first thing that I would mention is that worry is characterized by fixating on the size of the problem instead of the size of God. Worry is a faith killer because faith comes from focusing on the greatness of God, for whom nothing is impossible. The more I focus on the problem, what's going to happen? That problem or that crisis is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as that problem or crisis gets bigger and bigger, God is going to become smaller and smaller. And this is exactly what caused the children of Israel uh, to refuse to enter the promised land and to forfeit all the blessings that God had intended for them. Uh, as they looked at the enemies in the promised land, they said, all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. They became so worried about the size of their enemies, they lost sight of the size of their God. And all this happened after God miraculously redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, after he miraculously delivered them at the Red Sea from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, which at that time was the greatest army on planet Earth. Worry not only blinds you from seeing God in the present, but it also causes you to forget all that God has done for you in the past. Worry comes from focusing on the size of the problem or the crisis. Faith comes from focusing on the size of our God. Which one are you focusing on right now? You answer that question by answering this one. Which is bigger to you right now? Which is greater? The coronavirus or God? This is why we are admonished in the Bible to look away from all that will distract us and look to Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Second characteristic of worship or of worry, of worry, and that is fearing a negative outcome uh, so much that we lose sight 
of God is a present help. In other words, we, we focus on all the potential negative outcomes related to the problem of the crisis, so much so that we lose sight of God as a present help. In contrast, faith focuses on God's promises, confident that God is on the throne, that He is in control, causing all things, good and bad, including the coronavirus, to work together to ensure a positive outcome for His children and His glory. The fact that your heavenly daddy is on the throne, who loves you most, who knows what is best for you, the best outcome for you, that is what gives peace in the storm. So, worry is fixating on the size of the problem instead of the size of God. Second, worry is fearing a negative outcome instead of trusting God's sovereignty And then the third characteristic of worry that I would mention is that worry focuses so much on tomorrow's uncertainties that you neglect today's responsibilities. You can only live in the present. You cannot relive the past today any more than you can pre-live the future today. Therefore, when you expend all your emotional energy worrying about the future that you can do absolutely nothing about right now, you have no energy for what you need to do today. Uh, Corey Tinboom said it very well. Worry does not empty tomorrow of sorrows. It empties today of strength. And by the way, this is why Worry often goes hand in hand with depression because as your emotional energy is just absorbed with this focus on the negative potential outcomes, on the uncertainty of of the future, it depletes you of your strength. Uh, You have no motivation. You have no energy to do what you need to do today. Your work just continues to pile up, and that's going to depress anyone. So now let's look at God's cure Uh, for worry in the time that we have left. And uh, let me mention several things. First, and I think possibly the most important thing, is you need to perceive how precious you are in the eyes of your heavenly Father. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus demonstrated that worry actually causes you to lose your sense of worth. Uh, and value. And I'm talking about in the eyes of God. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 31 says, therefore, do not fear. Why? You are of more value than many sparrows. The point Jesus is making in Matthew 10 is this. If God the Creator cares for that little sparrow, one of the most insignificant of his creatures, then how much more does he care for his own children? In Luke 12, 24, we read, Yet God feeds them, referring to the birds of the air, and how much more valuable you are than the birds. In Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30, we read, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall or light on the ground apart from your father's knowledge. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
In Luke 12, 6, we read, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? The word translated cent refers to an Assyrian, which was the smallest coin in circulation in Jesus' day, like our penny today. Notice, two sparrows were sold for what? One cent, one penny. But if the buyer was prepared to spend two cents... Notice, he got not four sparrows, as you would expect. He, gave, he got five. An extra sparrow was thrown into the bargain as having no value at all. Notice, even the forgotten sparrow is precious to God. Even the forgotten sparrow that has absolutely no value in the eyes of men can't even light on the ground. And think of how many times a sparrow lights on the ground in a given day without the Father's knowledge. Now listen, beloved, if God cares like that for a sparrow that has no value in the eyes of men, that little forgotten sparrow, how much more again will God care for those he bought with the precious and priceless blood of his son? That's the value, that's the worth that God sees when he looks at you. Are you familiar with this with the song His Eyes are on the Sparrow? The second verse reads this way Let not your heart be troubled. His tender words I hear, and resting on his goodness, I lose my doubt and fear. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see, his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. God is aware of what you're going through. He's watching. He cares. And he's there to protect, to provide. And yes, even cause this to work ultimately for your spiritual good, growth, and his greater glory. If as God's child, you could ever perceive just how precious you are in the eyes of your heavenly father, your worries would literally vanish in his love. You would have no difficulty surrendering control to God, giving giving God the freedom to arrange the affairs of your life in the way that He deems best. You would know you can roll all your concerns on Him because He cares for you. So, if you're going to know worries cure, you must perceive how precious you are in the eyes of your heavenly Father. Look at the second cure. Number one, pursue the priorities of your heavenly Father. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and if you're familiar with the larger passage, this is in the context of a discussion on anxiety. Matter of fact, it's the greatest discourse in all of the Bible related to worry and anxiety. 
begins, I believe, about uh, uh, verse 24 of chapter 6 and goes all the way through the end of the chapter. And in verse 33, Jesus said, but seek first, again, in the context of this discussion on anxiety and worry, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In Mark 4, verse 19, Jesus said, But the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now listen to me, beloved. Worry, when I worry, when you worry, it's it's evidence that I have a divided heart towards God. And what I mean by that is, when I'm worried, Worrying, I'm I'm saying I don't believe God alone is enough. I need some other sort of security blanket, or I need something else that can bring me satisfaction and delight and enjoyment in life. So, on one hand, yes, I'm holding on to God, but the other hand, I'm holding this security blanket, or I'm or I'm grasping after what I think is going to bring me ultimate happiness and joy. And then when this becomes threatened. I fall into worry and anxiety because of that divided heart. And Jesus is saying, you do not need to seek that which is temporal. Look to me. Turn your eyes to me. Seek my kingdom. What he means by that is seek my rule in your life. Surrender to me. Submit to my authority to serve my agenda, to seek my approval. And if you will make that surrender, if you will make that the passion of your life, I give you the guarantee. I will provide you everything else you need to finish the work that I've given you here on earth to do. I will protect you. I will provide for you. Matter of fact, you are indestructible until you complete the work that I've planned for you to do here on planet earth. So, again, one of the issues with worry and anxiety is this divided heart. It just demonstrates then I'm not trusting God alone. Then I'm trying to hold on to some other security blanket. I'm not believing that God alone can bring me happiness. I'm grasping after temporal things of the world that are passing away. So this is really a call to develop an eternal value system as I surrender myself to God to follow Him and to honor Him by accomplishing His plans and purposes for my life. The third cure that I would suggest is purpose to please God today. Purpose to please God today. Remember we talked about uh, you get so tied up in the uncertainties of tomorrow that you neglect today's responsibilities? Well, Jesus recognized that that was a significant issue related to anxiety and worry. And as he comes to the end of his discourse on worry, this is his concluding remark. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. And which just came right after the verse we just read, verse 33. Seek God's kingdom. Seek God's rule over your life. Don't have a divided heart. Don't be double-minded. Have a single mind, a single heart towards God, trusting God alone. Trusting God alone to bring you ultimate joy and fulfillment. And then as you do that, therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love the way the paraphrase, the message puts this verse. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow because there's nothing you can do about that right now. And so one of the cures for worry is to get your focus off tomorrow, put it on today. Open your eyes and see those that are around you to begin to invest in those relationships. And that's one of the things this virus has provided as we're all sort of clustered in our homes. The opportunity to reconnect as married couples, the opportunity to reconnect with our uh, children. We don't want to be so caught up with fear and anxiety. We miss this wonderful opportunity to build those relationships. We don't miss the wonderful opportunity to stop focusing on the crisis and, and God, how can you use me today? How can I get on the phone today or use social media today to contact people, not to spread worry and anxiety, but to provide a word of encouragement, just to check on people and let them know I love them, that I, that I care for them. And to see this is a wonderful opportunity to grow in Christ's love and to express Christ's love to others. So purpose to please God today. Fourth, practice the presence of God. Luke chapter 10, verses 41 and 42. Jesus, uh, you're all familiar with this story. Uh, he's eating in the home of uh, Mary and Martha along with the disciples. And uh, remember, Martha was uh, making the preparations for the meal. Uh, Mary was seated at the feet of Jesus, uh, listening to his words, listening to his teaching. Uh, Martha became very agitated about the many preparations and the fact that uh, Mary was not assisting her. And uh, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one for Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. I don't think Jesus was rebuking Martha because she was busily at work providing the meal. The meal needed to be provided. The rebuke, I think, is the fact what her perspective was. She should have seen this as an opportunity to worship to where she would have been making those preparations with joy because she was about to serve her Lord, her Master, her Savior, and His men. And also notice, and I think this is the key word in that entire, this entire story, it says Mary has chosen the good part. In other words, Mary made a choice that Martha did not make, that Martha could have made, but did not make. Martha made a choice in this incredible moment when the creator of heaven and earth is literally eating in their home to focus on him. Because how many times are you going to have this opportunity of having God himself in human flesh in your home? So at that point, there's nothing more important than to focus on him. And I say that because in these days, we each are making choices. We're making choices. 
on, is our focus on the crisis or is our focus on God? Or are we doing is listening to the terrible news on TV or internet or whatever it might be, or are we turning to the good news of God's Word? Especially going to, uh, like, a, like the book of Psalms, uh, to find encouragement in this time from our uh, fears, uh, to find the grace of God? Am, am I looking for opportunities to love those that, that I'm in contact with? Am I looking for the opportunity to reach out to encourage others? We're all making those choices, how we're utilizing our time, how we're investing our lives in this time of crisis. And so I pray that you and I, in this crisis, we will choose to worship Jesus, to love Jesus. And we love Jesus by not only focusing on Jesus, but serving others as Jesus served us. By loving others as Jesus loved us. And we do that all from a motive to please Him, to honor Him. And I pray that God will give us the grace to do so. The fifth and the last thing that I would mention, we've talked about the importance of perceiving your worth in the eyes of your Heavenly Father, about pursuing the priorities of your Heavenly Father, uh, purposing to please God today, uh, to practice the presence of God, to make that choice Mary made. And then the fifth and last thing that I would mention is to pray, to pray for the provision of God in these days. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, uh, a passage that I know all of you are familiar with about being anxious for nothing, but uh, pray about everything. And again, if I could um, utilize the paraphrase, the message. Uh, because although it is a paraphrase, I really think it captures very well the spirit uh, of, uh, of what's being communicated in this text. Uh, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Remember we talked about last week? Worry is nothing more, fear is nothing more than what? Meditating on the problem. Faith comes from what? Meditating on God's Word. Seeing God, how great He is. And finding our trust and our confidence in Him. So don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. And I love this. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. See, worry, when you think about it, is just a perversion of the legitimate God-given emotion of concern. God gave us as humans the ability to be concerned so that we would tackle a problem, but looking to Him for the solution. And then knowing His grace, walking in obedience to know victory. But worry is a perversion of concern where we, we, don't, we don't use that emotion to turn us to God, but that emotion turns us to the problem, to the crisis. And that's where the fretting and the fear and the agitation and the anxiety is created. So it says, let petitions and praises shape your words. Shape those, those, those concerns into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness. Everything coming together for good 
will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes a statement that God knows what you need even before you ask. A lot of people look at that and they say, well, why even pray? If he already knows my need, why pray? Well, it's a misunderstanding of that passage. You know, we talk a lot about God's providence. Um, I think we even mentioned that last Sunday. It's, it's, it's God in his omniscience is able to look through all of time. Therefore, God has anticipated, foreseen, whatever word you want to use, in eternity past, every problem, every crisis, every need that you will ever confront in your life. And because he set his love on you, because you are his child, in foreseeing that crisis in eternity past, he's already made provision for you. Wonderful thought. Incredible thought. That God not only is aware of every need, every crisis, every adversity I will ever confront in life, but he's already made the provision. All for me to do is to discover it. Now, that raises the question. Well, if God has already made the provision for me, where will I discover that provision? And I think he gives us the answer in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, go into your, remember what it says? Your inner room. That, that, that phrase, inner room, is tamion in the Greek. It refers to what existed in every Jewish home. They had a little hiding place. It could be a, a little closet or some hideaway where they would store their valuables. So what is God saying? I've foreseen everything that you're ever going to confront in life. I foresaw this coronavirus. I foresaw its impact on you. And in the eternity past, I've already made provision for you. And I've stored that provision in the Tamion, in the inner room, that place of prayer. So what happens, because we get so caught up in worry, because we neglect looking to God in prayer, we often miss the care packages that God has dropped right in front of us because we're so agitated and consumed by our worry that we lose sight of God and we miss so often His provision for us. I, I've, I've wondered very often, when I get to heaven, will I be able to look back and, and be able to see uh, the provision that I often missed because of my failure to trust God and to go God in prayer. Not, not to go to God in prayer to twist the arm of a reluctant God to, to meet my need, but to go to God in prayer knowing He's already met the need. And I have the wonderful opportunity through prayer to appropriate God's wisdom, to appropriate the provision, to discover that provision, and to appropriate it, use it for His honor and for His, his glory. So as we uh, close today, um, uh, I know most of you watching, you're, you're believers. Uh, you are followers of Christ. 
but as we've mentioned, as followers of Christ, we're not immune from struggling with worries and fears because we're living in a world where there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of suffering. There is disease, there is death. But I pray that God has brought to you a degree of relief in your struggle with worry. I pray that you will take this truth. It's like I was telling a couple recently that I was in marriage counseling with. I shared with them, you need to understand, nothing magical is going to happen in this counseling room. The key is what happens once you leave this counseling room. Will you apply the truth that I've shared with you? And the same is true today. There's nothing magical about this moment. The key is, will you take this truth? Will you apply it to your life? And if you will, you can know God's peace. You can know God's peace in this present health and economic crisis, knowing that your loving daddy, your daddy is on the throne. Your daddy is in control. The one who loves you most, that knows what is best for you, that is committed to working out the outcome that is best for you to accomplish his plans and purposes in your life. Therefore, you can rest in the midst of living in a world like we live in today. And I never, never need doubt his love because all I got to do is look to the cross and if he gave me his son, his best, will he not give me everything else, as we read earlier from the book of Romans? If you are an unbeliever, you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are frightened right now, you are scared right now of the disease, you are scared of death, God will deliver you from the fear of death. Because when you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, through His death, burial, and resurrection on Christ for His children, He's transformed death into a door, into a door that opens wide into the glories of heaven, to perfect joy, to perfect fulfillment, to perfect peace. So as a child of God, you can have the confidence that, yes, your heavenly Daddy is on the throne that He's in control, that He has a plan for you, that your life is indestructible until that plan is completed. So the key is focusing on Him, following that plan, and then when death comes, you're delivered from the fear of death, knowing that for you, death means glory. Death for you means that you'll be present with Jesus. So if you do not know Him, I encourage you to place your trust in Him. Jesus loved you. He loved you so much, He sent His Son to die on the cross for you in order to pay for the penalty of your sin. The Bible says, He, Jesus, who knew, knew no sin, He became sin. He became what you are on that cross. That you might know His forgiveness and become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus rose again from the dead. When he was on that cross, your sins were placed on him, and he died. And when he rose again, your sins remained buried with him. And he's alive. And being alive, he extends his love to you. He extends his love to all who will put their faith and trust 
in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations. That's going to be true, even of believers. But he said, be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. And he overcame the world through his death, burial, and resurrection, just like we will overcome the world through faith and trust in Jesus as he gives grace in this life. And then as we overcome our final enemy, death itself, as we're taken into his presence. Bow with me in prayer. Father, I, I, I really don't know how to express or, or feel totally inadequate to express our appreciation uh, for your love. Lord, especially as your children, forgive us that we would ever doubt your love. Forgive us for wounding your heart when through our worry and our fret and fears, whether we realize it or not, we call into question your integrity, your love, and your power. Thank you that you set your love on us in eternity past, which is beyond us to even understand. And in setting your love on us, you foresaw every need, every crisis, every challenge, every hurt, every injustice, every persecution. And foreseeing all of that, you made provision for us to know your grace, to walk through it, and in walking through it, to develop a deeper intimacy with you as we walk through it, for it to provide us a platform to make Jesus known to a lost world. And we realize, yes, eventually, there will come that moment in each of our lives when you use even the tribulations of this world, disease, death, take us home to be with you. But we conclude, as Paul did, if God be for us, who can be against us? That we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God not anything in life, not death itself. And thank you for the amazing security that we have with our Jesus. So, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you would vanquish worry, fear, anxiety in our hearts and lives, and that you would build up in us trust. And we know that trust will come as our eyes are open to see your greatness, your majesty, your beauty, your love. So, Lord, that is our prayer. Open our eyes to see him, to see Jesus, who he is, what he did for us. 
that we would perceive our value in his eyes. So Lord, give us grace now in these days to turn our eyes to Jesus. For believers to turn their eyes to Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. And for those who do not know you, that in this crisis you would get their attention. That they too would turn their eyes to Jesus. And in turning to Jesus, find forgiveness and find grace to know and live out your plan for their lives. And we'll trust you for it. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. Andy's going to come now and uh, close us out with uh, uh, the perfect uh, song, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. And then uh, I'll come right behind him with just a closing remark. Thank you for being a part of the uh, service today, and I, I would encourage you uh, to uh, uh, go to our live stream uh, next Sunday for the uh, worship. I have uh, a very unique message planned that I think you will enjoy. It will be much more lighthearted than these uh, previous two. There will be uh, uh, some humor and laughter in it. I'm actually going to use my daughter, Carissa, to assist me in the message. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But it'll be a lot of fun. It's something that you won't want to miss. And although it's going to be a lot of fun and be somewhat lighthearted, it has a powerful message, an absolutely powerful message uh, that I believe can bring change and transformation uh, to your life. So I, so I encourage you to, uh, uh, to be with us uh, next Sunday. And again, before we leave, uh, we love you. Uh, we are praying for you. And, of course, God loves you. And again, do not hesitate to call the church office if you have any question, if you have any need. And my love and prayers will continue to be with you. And the love and prayers of the ministerial staff and elders will continue to be with you. So God bless you. Have a great day.